Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. This week, we've put together a sort of greatest hits album. We'll answer some of the questions we keep getting asked the most recently. Some of these questions are about the uncertainty people feel about the moment we're in right now, like what's happening with inflation. Some of them are questions about innovations we might see in the future. Stephanie, inflation definitely seems to be the topic on everybody's mind. What's the question you're getting asked the most right now? So one that comes up a lot lately is we know that inflation means prices are going up, but who actually is raising the prices? Like, how does that happen? You know, I think a lot of people just think of supply and demand and they think, well, prices just sort of pop out of these supply and demand curves and the market is just making the prices happen. But economists really understand that depending on the market that you're looking at, corporations often have a lot of pricing power. They have the ability to set prices. They can raise them. They can lower them. They don't just come from nowhere. You know, in a previous life, I worked for what was then the largest furniture retailer in the U.S. And one of the jobs I had when I was working for them was we called it tagging the floor. And basically, that meant that I carried a stack of uh, price tags around and a black Sharpie pen, and there were no prices until I wrote the price on the card and hung it on a sofa or a bedroom set or something like that. So I always knew where prices came from because they came from my Sharpie pen. If I wanted to raise the price of a dining room set or a headboard or a nightstand, I just changed the price and hung a different tag on it. So it's not the invisible hand, it was Stephanie's hand controlling everything. Literally. Sometimes we would pull all-nighters, and that meant that we would literally re-tag the entire floor. So we changed the price of basically everything overnight. Customer who'd been there on a Friday might come back on Saturday, and the whole place looked different. That's a lot of power to wield with one Sharpie. How much of it right now is companies seizing on this moment to take advantage, to raise prices on all their products, since there is this collective sense that everything is getting more expensive? Yeah, that's a question a lot of people are asking, and I don't think there's a clear answer in terms of how much of the inflation that we're, you know, enduring right now is due to the fact that bigger companies are, in a sense, taking advantage of the opportunity to hike prices in excess of their own rising costs. Surely that's happening. I think that's pretty clear that We know that there are companies that are out there that are saying, listen, I'm going to see what the market will bear. And I'm paying more for my labor. I'm paying more for some of my inputs. I'm going to pass those costs on to the consumer, but I'm going to see if I can pass on a little bit extra. 
It's a decision that companies have whether to raise prices at all in an environment where their own costs are going up. When I was a kid, I used to watch a movie called Mr. Mom. Mr. Mom. You mean the 80s Michael Keaton classic? A mother of a comedy. I can remember a scene from that movie where Terry Garr is working for an advertising company. And this is a point where, you know, the economy is struggling, inflation is running hot, and she goes in to pitch this campaign for tuna fish. And she's got all these executives sitting around the table and she says, you know, here's my idea. I think instead of raising prices like all of our competitors are doing, I think we should empathize with the consumer. And I think we should say, we're going to hold the line on prices. We're not going to raise them. We are the tuna with a heart. You know, inflation's a hard concept to talk about because we each experience it a little differently. You know, right now, if you're shopping for a car and you just signed a new lease on an apartment, you're really feeling it because, you know, auto prices and rents are both going up. Everyone's personal inflation rate is probably a little different. You might notice the cost of energy in particular or your grocery bill. The one place I really had sticker shock was on my gas and electric bill where the first digit of the bill was a number I had never seen there before, and it was really jarring. I haven't noticed this much with groceries because I have two teenage boys who seem to eat more and more every week, so they're sort of providing built-in inflation. Companies have also been really good at concealing inflation. The most famous example of that is what's called shrinkflation, where the same bag of potato chips it costs the same amount you used to pay for it, but now it's, you know, 20% smaller. So you're getting fewer chips, but paying the same price. You're actually paying more per chip, but you don't quite realize it. The other inflation question everyone has, which is sort of the broader question everyone has been asking for two years, is when will this end? Stephanie, as an economist, what are the signs we should be looking for to know when we're turning the corner on inflation? Well, I think one of the things that people are really focused on right now, a couple of things, right? Energy costs are one and supply chain is another. So, you know, kind of paying attention to shipping costs and how quickly supply chain bottlenecks are easing, looking at the semiconductor plants that manufacture the chips that are needed to put in, you know, things like new automobiles, because used and new cars have been driving and have a lot of the inflationary pressure over the course of the last year or so. So we're looking for things like that to step down. And then we're going to start to see some relief. So, Jeremy, I'm sure you're getting a lot of inflation questions at MarketWatch. Yeah, we definitely are. A lot of them have to do with financial investments and timing, how inflation might affect that. Questions like, is this a good time or a bad time to buy a house or to invest in the market? So we all know interest rates are headed higher, so what are you telling people? Well, first I should begin with our boilerplate disclaimer that we're not giving any actual investing advice here. But what I can say, and what our reporting has shown, is the the housing market continues to be really hot, and the mortgage rates are starting to go up, but are still relatively low, you know, historically speaking. Uh, In fact, a lot of people are still refinancing right now. Now, what happens if rates continue to rise and, you know, you know, and what that means for home prices and how easy it is to 
buy or sell is hard to say, but at the moment, I don't think there's any real reason not to buy because of inflation. It's crazy because the housing market is so red hot right now that, you know, you have a property on the market and you might have 40 people trying to buy it and half of them are all cash. So in a way, the interest rate doesn't really matter to buyers like those. So as for the market, there has been a great deal of volatility. The expectation that the Fed is going to keep raising rates, various geopolitical issues, including Ukraine. But it really comes down to what your time horizon is. As always, you know, if you're thinking more short term, all those factors are going to weigh more heavily than if you're looking years or decades ahead. Of course, there's also been this broader sense that the market is very overvalued at the moment, and there are no shortage of doomsayers saying that the bottom is going to fall out at any moment. On the other hand, some of our biggest companies, the big tech companies, are having record revenue right now. It's a pretty interesting market. Higher inflation is also creating some new opportunities. One of them is the lowly I-bond. An I-bond is an interest-bearing U.S. government savings bond. Basically, they are government bonds designed to give you protection against rising prices. So they're sort of ideally situated for this moment. Yeah, and you can actually take up to $5,000 of your tax refund in I-bonds. So it could be a good option to look into if you're getting a refund this year. As you know, we love talking about new ideas. Coming up after the break, a radical economic policy idea that continues to gain traction. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high volume, high speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we answered some of your questions about inflation. And inflation tends to make people think about how they're going to pay their bills. Some people asked us about universal basic income, or UBI. That's when the government sends everyone a guaranteed regular payment. So the idea for a universal basic income got a lot of attention during the presidential campaign when Andrew Yang made it a pillar of his platform. It would be the trickle-up economy from our people, families, and communities up. We would spend the money and it would circulate through our regional economies and neighborhoods, creating millions of jobs, making our families stronger and healthier. I mean, it goes back centuries. Thomas Paine, one of the architects of the American Revolution, had this idea for a ground rent. So 15 pounds would be paid to every individual upon turning 21, followed by 10 pounds every year after turning 50. The economist Milton Friedman proposed something vaguely similar called a negative income tax. Yeah, the idea of a negative income tax was pretty simple. You just pick a threshold, and anybody who's making less than that amount of money gets a payment from the government. Anybody who's making more pays tax. Smaller scale versions of universal basic income are being tested in cities around the United States and other places around the world. 
Yeah, I think a lot of them are basic income pilot programs. They're not necessarily universal, so they, they're not open to everyone. Everybody's not receiving a payment, but in a lot of these pilot programs, you know, a small group of people are receiving regular kind of standardized payments from a local government or some other authority. Now in Wales, they are doing pilot programs of some kind of basic income. A lot of people look to Alaska as an example of a program like this. And Alaska does pay out to all of its state residents a regular payment each year. It's based on the oil reserves and how much is generated through oil prices. But they're not, they're not really large enough to cover your basic costs. So most of the time when people talk about basic income, they're talking about sums of money that are kind of substantial enough to let you meet your basic needs. The payments in Alaska tend to range from kind of the hundreds of dollars to the one or maybe into the $2,000 range. So not enough to meet your basic needs. It's sort of more like a Christmas bonus. In a sense, we have a number of basic income programs, even at the federal level. Like Social Security is a form of basic income support for nearly all retirees and for their dependents and for the disabled. And the child tax credit that expired just in December was a kind of universal basic income. Most families got it. If you had kids under the age of 18, you got $250 or $300 per child. So that was an example of a kind of basic income scheme. And you could even look at you know, government bonds and the interest that's paid to bondholders as a kind of basic income for people who already have money. It's kind of funny that there's such a strong reaction to ideas like universal basic income or universal health care. As you point out, we basically do have both for people in certain categories, namely older people. But it's fair to say this is not universally accepted as the way forward. There's plenty of pushback to the whole concept. A lot of UBI enthusiasts like to point to Martin Luther King Jr., but what King was really advocating was a lot more comprehensive than just to UBI. I mean, King and then later his wife, Coretta Scott King, what they both advocated for was income support mostly in the form of work. I mean, King fought for a guaranteed right to income through employment. So what they advocated was that everybody should have the right to a job and an income through that, but that there were people who could not or should not work. And that would include people like the elderly, the disabled, and that there ought to be income support for people who society considers, you know, too vulnerable or for other reasons shouldn't be in the workplace. The chief argument against universal basic income is how are we going to pay for this? It's going to be astronomically expensive to write a check to every American. So it could be expensive. It depends, you know, how big a payment you actually want to make. And is it truly going to be universal? Will it go to everyone? Or will there be some means testing? And you know, are you going to treat it as income? And will it be taxable income? And there's always the risk when you start doing things like this that somebody who starts receiving this form of income support ends up losing out on a whole range of other programs that are means tested and therefore this payment pushes them above the income threshold so they no longer qualify for a whole range of other programs. They might end up worse off in the end. I sort of think of universal basic income like getting $200 for passing Go and Monopoly. It's the bare minimum you need just to play the game. 
Advocates say it would reduce economic inequality and it could do a great deal to reduce hunger. So I guess the big question here is, what are the chances this could really actually happen in the U.S.? Well, I think, you know, never say never, but it's pretty hard to imagine getting, you know, the votes that would be needed to pass federal legislation to introduce something like a universal basic income. Maybe somewhere in the future we might see something like this, but anything is possible. I'm not a super forecaster. We always enjoy answering your questions. Please keep them coming. Record a voice memo for us and send it to bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. You'll have our eternal, universal, basic gratitude. Thanks for listening to the Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a review. As you probably know, it's the best way for other listeners to discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line or send us a voicemail at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Suzanne Myers is our producer, and our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockhart. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.